the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Tuesday, the 16th of May. Good afternoon. Welcome on board. Good to have you in on this edition of Lifeline. Always a privilege to spend a little commute time with you here in the afternoon. So get you home safe and sound and... uh, Oh, let's see here. Somebody's calling. They don't know I'm on the radio at this time. What's going on there? (laughs) Probably a bill collector. Anyway, uh, (laughs) great to have you with us and uh, always a privilege to uh, spend a little time with you. As I say, Uh, we don't take uh, the opportunity to be with you in your car or whatever you might be doing on a uh, afternoon lightly. So, again, thank you so much for the privilege. Lots to talk about on today's show. We'll get you an update on Senate Bill 407. This is a bill that's going to make it impossible for Christians to foster parent in our state because of yet another draconian attempt to try and reshuffle the deck when it comes to morals and what you can and can't do with how you raise kids, whether your own or invited as part of your family into your own home. Vern Tyler founder of Hosanna Homes and the Hosanna Parent Project will join us coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. I want to start with a bit of an update on Wall Street. A down day today. In fact, the uh, big board sliding over 300 points today as the ongoing standoff over the uh, debt ceiling continues. And, of course, we've got uh, remarks out of the uh, White House indicating that a meeting that took place with congressional leaders over raising the debt ceiling was, quote-unquote, productive. The statement noting the president remains optimistic about reaching a, quote, responsible bipartisan budget agreement. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, meanwhile, of those who joined Biden in the Oval Office, said that the two sides remain far apart, but a deal could be reached by the end of the week. So what if they don't? Janet Yellen certainly has thoughts on this topic, but we've gone to somebody even better. (laughs) We're going to talk with Jerry Boyer. He is a financial expert, public speaker, and the publisher of Affluent Investor Daily. And Jerry, always a privilege to have you join us on the program. Let's get your take on this. I mean, I know there's a bit of saber rattling going on between the two sides and a bit of scare tactics just to try and get one side to do what the other side wants. But from your perspective, is there a possibility that they might not reach an agreement in the next 14 days? And if so, what would that look like for not just the economy of the average American, but quite frankly, what it would look like for the impact on America's standing economically globally? Well, yes, there is a possibility, but I wouldn't say there's a probability that they won't reach an agreement um, and probably not a plausibility because 
if um, if it really was likely that they would not reach an agreement, uh, which would mean that we'd have some kind of crisis, could be a default crisis um, or a shutdown, then gold would not be up, you know, uh, 0.04% today. <laughs> it would be up 40%. Uh, you know, it wouldn't be hovering just under 2,000. It would be hovering just under 4,000 uh, because that would be a, um, a sign of a serious crisis coming uh, and the possibility of um, a debt crisis. If we default, that's bad. Um, and I, I, look, I understand that the long-term problem is spending, um, but we're not going to solve that long-term problem if we basically say, okay, we're going to drive such a hard bargain. And by we, I'm talking about conservatives, so I'm on a side. I just have to be straight about that. If we conservatives um, use the debt ceiling in order to get some reasonable concessions, I come out of that saying that's great, you know, like spending caps or something like that. But with these um, debt cap battles, there's always the possibility that we play chicken for just a little too long and then there's a crash. Um, and if we get to the point where we've played chicken too much um, and the United States misses a bond payment, then that is a thing that is pretty cataclysmically bad. It's almost like a third world kind of thing. Um, and what would that mean? That would mean that there would be a run on treasuries around the world and there'd be a run on dollars. Uh, the world would say, oh, the United States is no longer, um, you know, full, the full faith and credit is not something that we can give full faith to anymore and, um, and give credit to. Um, and they wouldn't want treasury bonds and they wouldn't want the dollar. Uh, and if they don't want treasury bonds, that means interest rates would rise, which is the recessionary. And if they don't want the dollar, that means the dollars come back and circulate domestically. They're not held overseas, uh, which is inflationary. And we would long for the days of 10% inflation like we had a year ago, because we'd be looking at more. Now, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen. I don't think that is going to be what's going to happen. I think what we're going to do is do what we've always done, which is kick the can down the road and do more spending. Uh, so the market, the stock markets are down today uh, and the dollar's weaker and gold is up and Bitcoin is up. So all of that is saying we're probably going to end up just doing what we've always done, which is continuing to spend, continuing to borrow and continuing to print money in order to do that. So we're choosing the Slow, the, the slow motion default, which is monetization of debt and inflation, rather than the fast version of default, which is to actually miss a bond payment. And to be clear about this, this is not raising the debt ceiling limit so we can go out and buy more stuff. This is raising the debt ceiling limit so that we can essentially pay our bills, make our obligations. Yes, and um, and actually, you know, if we're borrowing money to pay the interest on the money that we've borrowed, so this is a situation where we're kind of borrowing on a credit card to make our credit card payments. Uh, so you borrow on one credit card to pay the bills, so that you don't default on the other credit card. Uh, so, I mean, the situation is that we borrow, we use bonds to do that, um, but those bonds, you know, they have a duration. Some of them are thirty-year bonds, and some of them are ten year bonds and some of them are five and three and there's one year bonds even uh, and there are three three month bonds etc so what happens is when they mature then the government has to pay back the money so what we do is 
we we don't pay back the money. We roll over the bonds. We issue new bonds. Uh, so we keep rolling that credit over again and again and again. So the debt ceiling would be used to roll over the credit. Now, if somebody, you know, I'm, I'm a financial person, I'm not a financial advisor, a financial planner, but my clients are financial advisors and financial planners. So I advise advisors. When, when clients are doing that, that is a bad sign for their long-term outlook. Well, that's a bad sign for the long-term outlook of the United States. Um, I just don't know a way in which we can stop it. And that's the thing that scares me. Republicans don't have the, we don't, you know, we don't have the presidency um, and we don't have the ability to control spending. And by the way, when we do have it, and all of a sudden we get less interested in controlling spending. Uh, basically, the consensus in Washington is spending is too high when my party isn't in power, whichever one it is. But when we're in charge, then spending is not high enough. Yeah. So we have a bipartisan pro-spending, pro-borrowing consensus, and the inevitable result, there's no way to have the borrowing without the money creation, because we're not savers as, as Americans. So if we don't save money to lend money to the government, then what does that mean? It means that the Federal Reserve has to create new money, and then it lends that newly created money to the federal government, and that's inflationary. It's basically an economic shell game, and uh, it just depends on who was holding the shells at the moment as to what direction uh, things end up spinning. And you're right. It isn't ironic that when the Democrats are in control, they have no problem with spending. But when the shoe is on the other foot, they're all against it and vice versa. You indicate, Jerry, that the notion of defaulting is possible. Anything is possible, but not probable. That said, I'm curious. One of the comments that Fed Chair Yellen has made, um, uh, not Fed Chair, but, but Janet Yellen has made uh, repeatedly, Treasury, Treasury Secretary, uh, yeah, yeah, right. the flashback there, <laughs> um, right. that she, she has made repeatedly is the notion that, well, if we allow the default to take place, that will unseat the dollar and would likely open the doorway for the Chinese renminbi to take over as a dominant world currency. I, I, again, not, outside of the notion of possible versus probable, um, just if you if you look at it from a financial standpoint, it, is the world really clamoring to get Chinese money as the new standard, or are there pitfalls with that as well? Oh, there are. I, I don't think the world trusts the Chinese. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't think we trusted them before the Wuhan virus. And I, I'm quite sure we don't trust them now. I mean, I, I think a lot of the world understands that uh, that the CCP is an extremely corrupt institution and that they can't be trusted. Um, I mean, after all, if, if the Chinese could be trusted, the dollar would have lost reserve currency status a long time ago because we've been doing a lot of stupid things. So as stupid as we've been, um, the, Chi the Chinese system is much worse, much worse rule of law, much less stability. And by the way, they don't have a democratically elected form of government. They're still a dictatorship. They have a revolution in their
near future. They're not going to be a dictatorship forever. Uh, so at some point, you know, there's, they're actually going to become a democrat. In my opinion, they're going to become a democratic republic. Dictatorships fall. So who wants to be holding the bag on the renminbi uh, or, or or the bonds uh, you want, or however you want to put it, uh, or the bonds when that happens? So yeah, they're they're pretty weak. Plus, there's something else. You can only become the reserve currency of the world if you're willing to let the world trade in your currency, which means you have to give up control. But they have capital controls, so they're not willing to have a free market in the yuan, enough of a free market where it even could be freely traded so that it could be the reserve currency. So I don't think the world would turn to the yuan. I think if we lost our reserve currency status, it would be the world would turn to all of the above. In other words, they'd say, okay, we're using maybe the dollars being used maybe on 50% of transactions or 40% depending international transactions, depending on how you count it. And, um, you know, we're the, we're, we're about a little more than half of the reserve currencies. So let's say they let's say the world stopped trusting us. They wouldn't say, well, we're going to sell that 60% of dollars and buy 60% yuan. What they'll do is they'll sell a few trillion, maybe a trillion or two of dollars, and they'll buy some gold, and they'll buy some euros, and they'll buy some yen, and they'll buy some yuan. I mean, they'll, they'll diversify um, away from the dollar. So it wouldn't be like a sudden, it wouldn't be like happened after World War II, which was, you know, the, the kind of the reserve currency system kind of shifted from being Great Britain pound centered, um, really after World War One and then to World War Two. There was a situation where the pound was the reserve currency of the world, and then the dollar became the reserve currency of the world. I don't think that's that's a situation because the dollar was ready to replace the pound under the socialist government of Clement Attlee. Um, when people rejected the British pound, that they had someplace else to go, but they don't have one other someplace else to go now. So what they would essentially do is you'd have, you wouldn't have any reserve currency at all. You'd have a mixture. So the yuan, the Chinese currency, would be like a regional reserve currency. The trading partners in Asia, there'd be, you know, a lot of them would hold yuan, but you probably wouldn't have a lot of yuan held by Canada or the European countries, and the yen would still be a powerful currency. So I, I think, and even, you know, the British pound to some degree. So I think that Yellen is fear-mongering there a little bit. Um, first of all, nobody's talking about default. Second of all, I don't understand why the Biden White House keeps acting as though the Republicans' unwillingness to raise the debt ceiling would be the thing that would trigger the default, as opposed to the Democrats' unwillingness to come to a reasonable agreement about the spending cap. Exactly. Who's more? Who's more responsible? Who's the, um, got I the think greater the one risk? Who wants to keep spending is more responsible. Yeah, undoubtedly so. And the other notion I think here is the idea that um, no party wants it on their head as being responsible for triggering a massive economic sinking uh, recession in America. That's just not a good look particularly when you're 18 months out from an election. Jerry Boyer with us today. He is an economist and publisher of the Affluent Investor Daily. We're talking about the world of money. When we come back, if you had money in First Republic Bank or Silicon Valley Bank, you you probably have a growing distrust for banks. Certainly, there are a number of Americans that feel that way. How about... How about an example of a bank when we come back that's being distrusted by growing numbers of Americans for an entirely different set of reasons that has nothing to do with their financial management, 
but rather just who you are as a depositor. You talking about, Craig? What you're going to find out next is our conversation with Jerry Boyer. Information on the web, affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. Back with more after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So imagine going to your bank one day and saying, hi, I'm here to make a deposit. And you give your deposit slip and the amount of money that you're going to place into your account across the counter there to the teller. And the teller quickly types on the keyboard, right? Comes back and says, I'm sorry, sir, your account's been closed. What? Excuse me? Why is my... I, I didn't close the account. How could that... Wait a minute here. My account's been closed. Bring the branch manager over. The branch manager tells you, yeah, your account's been closed, but I can't tell you why. What? Now, I suppose if a bank found out that you have been involved in some nefarious activities like counterfeiting and things of that sort, and they think that you might be a big risk because maybe the money you're depositing is phony money, maybe, maybe they've got a reason there. But what we're learning is one bank in particular, and it may not be limited to Chase, but certainly Chase is the one that's being accused in this story, um, has apparently been following a kind of quiet, below-the-radar-screen policy of basically shutting down their business, closing relationships, as they call it, not because of nefarious activities related to an account, but because, because gentle listener... They just don't like you. <laughs> Jerry Boyer continues our discussion today, publisher of Affluent Investor Daily and an economist. And uh, Jerry, you know, you read a story like this and you think, this has got to be something out of the onion. What bank would do this? And apparently, at least at this point, first glance, it seems to be, well, the answer is Chase Bank. Tell us what's going on. Yeah, it is a little bit onion-like in that it makes me want to cry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and it kind of stinks a little. Uh, yeah, the the person you're talking about is a former ambassador at large for religious liberty, Sam Brownback, who was also before that this, a senator from Kansas and the governor of Kansas. Great guy. Very been well a guest on this show many times down through the years. I would expect that, right? Um, that's the kind of quality person you have on. And a very reasonable man, very well-respected. You know, he worked with Chuck Schumer on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, so bipartisan uh, credentials. You know, by the way, Bill Clinton signed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. This is not exactly some crazy radical. Uh, and he started a religious freedom organization that advocated religious freedom uh, and, and had that account at uh, his Chase Bank. And they told him they he shut it down, and they wouldn't tell him why. Um, and then they later on they gave explanations, but they kept giving different explanations. And they asked him, "Well, who are your major donors, and what candidates are you supporting?" Um, and if you tell us that, maybe we can reinstate your bank. And he said, "I'm not going to tell you who my donors are. Um, you know, that's private information. You don't need to know that." Um, and so they did not reinstate it. Uh, they've told a lot of stories. By the way, I've talked with Chase extensively about this. Um, you know, uh, so they've had different versions of the story. Uh, they said that he didn't fill out the paperwork in a timely manner. 
but the paperwork they're referring to, there's a 60-day deadline, and they, they canceled his account after 24 days. So he didn't miss a deadline because they canceled before the deadline. And then they said something about some, you know, under the law, uh, you know, we have to be careful about terrorism, international terrorism. And he said, well, no, I'm not terrorist. Um, and, um, you know, they, they keep changing up what the, you know, what the story is. Um, and they never really have given a satisfactory explanation uh, for, you know, why they canceled his account. But they have canceled other accounts from conservatives. They have a history of that. Uh, and by the way, I've talked to the Investment Relations Department, and they could not give me any examples of any liberal groups um, who had had their uh, you know accounts canceled. So there seems to be a pattern to this. Uh, so a financial advisor uh, from Southern California, um, David Bonson, put a proposal on the ballot, and all he said is, we want you to do a report that is transparent about how these things happen. How do you make these decisions? Uh, and do you count the cost of backlash for debanking someone? Are you violating people's civil liberties? And what they they didn't want to do the report. In fact, they didn't even want to let the, the this question go on the ballot before shareholders. They didn't even want shareholders to be able to vote on the question of whether the company should report this information to shareholders. So they tried to block it with the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Securities and Exchange Commission said, no, we don't agree with you, J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, we think that this is a matter that properly is before the shareholders. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing their view, but they didn't support the, the request uh, from J.P. Morgan Chase to leave it off the ballot. Uh, and, um, you know, I mean, what they're saying is we don't have a policy of debanking people based on their religious or political views. Well, of course they don't have a policy of that. No company in the world would have a policy of debanking someone based on their political or religious views. That would be completely indefensible. Instead, here's the way it works. The way it works is they have vague policies. Like, we don't want to do business with anybody who's hateful or harmful or involved in hateful expressions or has hateful views. So they put out vague standards, and then somebody in the bureaucracy can say, well, you know, this religious liberty stuff has been used to uh, block, you know, trans legislation uh, or for people who don't want to support um, abortion or don't want to do gay marriages or et cetera, et cetera. So maybe this is hateful. You know, that that's that's how it usually works. Is that how it worked at Chase? We don't know because they don't want to say how it works. All The only thing they're willing to say is that they don't have an explicit policy of discriminating based on religion. Oh, well, great. Congratulations. Nobody has an explicit policy like that. You know what's ironic but, about this is I, I could understand, again, as I suggested in my opening remarks, from a risk management standpoint, that they might be concerned about, well, there are allegations and some evidence that you may be using this account for money laundering. Okay, nefarious activities, you know, maybe you've got a point. But can you imagine any any publicly traded company saying, yes, when you come through the doors of Sam's Club, Walmart, Costco, Safeway, Lucky's, insert name here, CBS, we want to check with you and make sure that you don't have views or opinions that we don't find to be pleasant. And before we'll sell you our products, we're going we're gonna to put you through our litmus test. I mean, you know, it would be the end yeah. of capitalism if you did that. I just find it abhorrent that a bank would even suggest that they would do something like this, whether it's an official publicly stated on books policy or one of these sort of quiet
quiet behind the scenes. We don't publicize it. We don't talk about it, but we do it anyway sort of policy. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, we don't serve your kind here, but we're not going to exactly say what your kind is. Yeah, exactly. Explain why. Uh, there's a former Chase executive who says they have a um, policy called red dotting, where you put a red dot on a customer that you think is a reputational risk to the bank. So I think the situation is likely. I mean, who knows? Because if they don't disclose, you just have to look at the pattern and then speculate as to you know why they're doing what they're doing. I think that it's pretty clear that with a lot of the large corporations and especially the large banks, which are probably more ideologically captured because they're more dependent on government, they're highly regulated by government and they're also bailed out by government. Uh, so they're kind of, I mean, we're like free insurance to them because they're mm-hmm. too big to fail. Um, and today at a press conference, uh, Scott Shepard from the National Center said, if you're too big to fail, then you're too big to discriminate. If you're dependent on the taxpayer, then you shouldn't be able to discriminate. Uh, but of course, I think we all believe that banks should be able to discriminate based on reasonable standards. Um, banks should be able to turn down a mafioso or a drug dealer. Um, I mean, I get that. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about an extremely middle America, mainstream, um, moderate Republican, pro-religious liberty organization. I mean, this isn't even a religious... Um, look, if this was an organization that was out there saying we're opposed to gay marriage, they shouldn't be debanked, okay? But they weren't even saying that. They They were just doing nothing but affirming religious liberty. Um, But I think that there's a sense in which religious liberty is now seen by many people as essentially a defense of hate. And if that's the case, then what we're going to find is more and more discrimination against Christians. Now, Chase says, well, listen, we've got 50,000 religious customers, you know, banks or churches, synagogues, whatever. I get that, but your local Baptist or your local Catholic church is different than an organization that's out there taking public stances on issues. That is a, that's more likely to trigger a response from the hard left, a group that's out there saying, we are going to support in the public square the idea of religious liberty, because that actually is involved in a conflict, because religious liberty is, in fact, a defense against the authoritarianism, to some degree, of the LGBTQ movement, which is basically saying, you know, bake the cake or else, take the pictures or else. And people are saying, wait a minute, I've got religious liberty. So there is a conflict between advocates of religious liberty and advocates of forced conformity on sexual identity issues. So that's why J.P. Morgan Chase can say, we've got 50,000 you know, churches that we have accounts for and we haven't canceled them. Yeah, they're harmless from your point yeah, of view. Yeah, but to tell you, Jerry, this is kind of the equivalent of um, what comes to mind. The guy who's just been arrested for murder is saying, but yeah, the first 10 people that walked by, I didn't shoot any of them. You know, I like, wait a minute, not a really solid defense. Moreover, you know, again, reputational management, but it's not like it's a, a major known organization. And moreover, if it were not for this conversation, how would anybody even know that Sam Brownback's organization used to bank with Chase? Nobody but Sam Brownback knows that. It's just, you know, it it's, well, you know, it's modern day woke business.
Doesn't happen everywhere. Not everybody that gets accused of being woke is, but boy, it sure seems like it in this case. More on the story, no doubt, as this continues to develop. Jerry Boyer, we appreciate the time. Information about Jerry's work on the web at affluentinvestor.com. That's affluentinvestor.com. Looking for the story behind the story when it comes to money. It's a great newsletter to subscribe to, affluentinvestor.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, lots to talk about with my next guest tonight. You know him well. He is the founder of Hosanna Homes and uh, certainly the uh, Hosanna Parenting Project, which we've talked about a lot on this program. Always did like to have join us, Vern Tyler. Vern, welcome. Always a pleasure, Craig. Thank you. Vern, lots to unpack tonight, but I want to start first by having you comment on an issue that I'm sure you've been following. We certainly have here at Lifeline, and that is Senate Bill 407. You know, the irony is there is such a huge stress, such a huge demand for foster parents in the state of California that you would think, you would think that our legislators would try to do everything that they can to try to encourage more families that want to love a child that's in distress being removed perhaps from an abusive situation or a situation where a parent is in jail, whatever the case might be, put them into a loving, caring home that will open their hearts, open their home to this child. But in spite of that notion of wanting or needing to do that and, and the enormous pressure, as I say, on the foster parenting system because there's greater demand than there are foster parents available. Instead, instead, the California legislature is doing just the opposite, sending what appears to be a signal to people of faith in this state that you as a foster parent are not wanted, at least not if you intend to maintain your own family values and and biblical standards inside of your own home. It's truly amazing. Tell us more about 407 and why this is so dangerous. Uh, Well, I went to Sacramento, was it about uh, three weeks ago, I think it was, to uh, uh, talk to the legislature about the reason that I was opposing the bill. Uh, as a uh, foster parent uh, and as a, an executive director of an agency that recruited and trained foster parents, faith-based, um, this was a, uh, a huge uh, issue in terms of being recruit parents. They were very reluctant, and, and I would say a very high percentage of our families that had previously been foster parents, but because of their experience demanded, uh, mocked, and so on about their values, but they left the public agencies and came to us as a private agency to be recertified. Um, these were people of faith. So it's an issue. It's a definite. And unfortunately, this is a very specialized piece of legislation that, uh, but in fact, let me read from a summary here uh, that I have from the legislature. It says, this bill uh, would require which is a foster parent to demonstrate an understanding of the unique needs of lesbian gay uh, and so forth and that uh, they would also be able to demonstrate uh, an ability to provide for that child now this is in my estimation and this is the way presented it to the legislature this is special uh, 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 legislation for a particular population, and they uh, uh, readily admitted there that in, in the uh, hearing that they they indicated that roughly thirty they thirty percent of the children in care were uh, the, the LGBTQ uh, 
um, children. I think that's way out of line. I think it's much higher than it is. Uh, but that 30% is now being hyper um, pushed or, or uh, uh, being um, uh, legislated for their protection, which is going to hurt the other 70%. And I don't think that it's going to even help the 30%, because what pair is going to want to uh, acknowledge a person of faith, capable of faith, or that have simply the moral value? It may not be a value of faith, but that... Uh, that lifestyle is not appropriate and uh, violates scriptural um, context, um, then what happens is you're going to be discouraging everybody other than those that are LGBTQ-oriented that don't want to come in. That means then that our children that are not LGBTQ are going to be indoctrinated even more or not have the kind of placement that the state Constitution, the state legislation currently protects. The LGBTQ children are protected under current law in that the child is supposed to be provided a home that meets their needs. Um, and we had, uh, even in our faith based uh, uh, licensing or certified families, we had a number of youth that, that uh, existed, coexisted, lived within that. Uh, family environment and succeeded. Even Judy and me and our foster family, we had several youth that were LGBTQ or, uh, uh, oriented children. We didn't have any problems. But it appeared for me after that hearing, listening to uh, uh, Senator Weiner, their concern was they felt this legislation or this way they represented it, that it would protect, further protect these children's rights. In other words, they were basically saying these children currently don't have any rights, which was absolutely false. And, of course, what's problematic about this is the lack of balance here, because these children oftentimes will be invited into a home where there may be children that the family already has. And so, of course, there's a, a family standard that has been established from from a you know a moral viewpoint, religious viewpoint, whatever might be undergirding uh, the, the fashion in which you raise your children. And you may not necessarily want to change that. And, and yet, instead of saying, well, you know, oftentimes uh, there are circumstances where the child has to make some adjustments, to be sure. Um, if a family says, for example, on a Sunday, what we do as a family is we go to church together. Um, whether you're firstborn male blood child of the family or not, it, it, does that necessarily become an option? And, and if so, what kind of turmoil does that create inside of the family when you have to have multiple sets of rules, multiple sets of viewpoints, essentially, uh, in order to be compliant? I mean, it seems to me that if a bill like this, Vern, as you described it, and we had Jonathan Keller on last week talking about it as well, it seems to me that if a bill as written of this sort were to pass, it really is sending a message to people of faith that are interested in foster parenting that the state is not interested in you. Is that is that, do you think, accurate viewpoint or yes, observation? And I think, I, yes, and I think uh, to kind of expand on that a little bit, Craig, uh, the, uh, the, the system, and not just here in the state of California, but around the, and around the world, is that the system needs to be child-oriented. In other words, the best interest of the child well, that's not too bad if you have institutional care because you can monitor your institution based upon the needs of the child. 
But when you uh, uh, want to put children in private homes and you're going to use big government with the big hand of government to slam you into that kind of a position, uh, I don't think many families uh, are going to want to become foster parents realizing that this is going to be the case. Now, this goes a little bit deeper because this bill not only goes to the performance after the child is placed, but during the investigative and the evaluation process, this bill mandates that the family has to be probed with regard to their ability and their willingness to support the child. We'll see if we're going, if that's up front, a family of faith is not going to be able to even become a foster parent unless they want to, uh, um, uh, you know, compromise their faith, uh, compromise their family values, compromise who they are. Uh, I just don't see that happening. Uh, other than Craig, during these times, uh, uh, I'm kind of very concerned seeing how people, particularly people of faith, are standing up or not standing up to um, their values. And I think that's where we're at now. Let me make one other comment here at this juncture that comes to my mind. Uh, I've uh, gone to Sacramento a number of times and uh, uh, stood in front of the legislature and uh, either for or against or in opposition to uh, a bill. Uh, in the past, now I haven't gone to Sacramento, I'm going to say for probably about eight years. I did this time because of the uh, the issue and my understanding, my, my experience and so on. So I thought I'd better go. So I did. This time I was not mocked or ridiculed. I was... Uh, <laughs> It, uh, just kind of dismissed, if you will. That was the sense that I got. Previously, uh, they appeared to be this group, these people are supporting these kinds of things, felt um, threatened, so they would lash back. This time, I felt totally different, and it terrified me. I think they're comfortable now. They're comfortable where they are. And Craig, while I was there, of the testimonies that were there, there are only two that spoke in opposition to the bill. I was one of them. And they had the other uh, several speakers they had were for the bill. And then they had open telephone people where they could uh, telephone conversations where people could call in and indicate whether they were uh, for or in opposition to the bill. There was not one telephone call that came in opposition of the bill. So again, I just see a comfort level in uh, Sacramento saying, hey, we're here, we can just, and you're going to then get this single interest, um, um, single purpose bill that we're now seeing. So I think this goes beyond the foster care issue. I think we as a culture are really facing some some horrible circumstances and conditions. Well, there, there certainly, I think, is an abundance of growing evidence of that, no doubt. And the fact that we even have these discussions these days compared to where we were even 10 years ago, I think, is proof positive of that. Fern Tyler with us today, founder of Hosanna Homes and the Hosanna Parent Project. We're going to turn a corner to a far more pleasant topic, and that is, as a parent, if you struggle with raising a child these days, and heaven knows if our parents thought it was rough raising us, and their parents two generations ago thought it was difficult raising your parents. 
Just imagine what it's like being a parent today. Well, if you are one and you struggle with being able to combat so much that's thrown at you as a parent, what do you do? Where do you, where do you get a solid education to know how to manage your child, how to deal with a stubborn child, strong-willed child, and uh, bring about an atmosphere of harmony in a household? Maybe you're in a house right now that hasn't seen harmony and peace since the kid was eight. We're going to talk about some of the great resources available through Hosanna and, of course, the Parent Project. As our conversation with Vern Tyler continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're back with Vern Tyler, founder of Hosanna Homes, and um, talking a bit about the challenges of parenting today. And whether you're a foster parent or a grandparent that's uh, now raising your grandkids or uh, new kids at home as a new parent, and you're worried about, wow, if they're behaving like this at five, imagine what's going to happen when they're 10 or 15. Well... The Parent Project really helps to equip parents to learn how to negotiate through those oftentimes challenging years. And uh, Vern, take a few minutes, if you would, and tell us a bit about this this amazing program uh, that you've been working so hard to make available to parents all across the Bay Area. Well, I think one of the greater challenges, Craig, is that most of us in the families of, of origin, our, our families, uh, have uh, basically use the punitive or punishment uh, concept of uh, disciplining. And I think this raises tons of questions. Uh, one of the things that I try to, principles that I basically use in my teaching, is that we have to learn how to respect one another. To me, this is one of the key issues that's out there. Uh, when we're punishing our children, that's normally not going to be a respectful process. When our children misbehave, that's a disrespectful process to our parents. Well, we've got to be able to uh, uh, respect our children and our children respect us during all of these processes, well, good or bad. Um, and I find that it's not that challenging or not that difficult if uh, we learn to discipline ourselves to understand what respect is appreciated. I uh, oftentimes will use the term respect begets respect, but disrespect begets disrespect. So when any of my children, foster children, biological children, whenever they would misbehave, one of my first responses was, is that respectful or disrespectful? And, uh, of course, disrespectful behavior is a bad choice, bad choices, bad consequences. They make good choices, they're going to receive good consequences. That's just natural. That's normal. That's a truism throughout life with uh, uh, our relationships. So, again, I try to focus on this issue of uh, uh, respect, disrespect and uh, help families understand how they integrate that appropriately in their family, the chaos tends to disappear. Now, arguing is, if you were to ask me, what is the greatest disruption to families? I'm gonna say arguing. Uh, When I go into a home or visit somebody, I think one of the more common things to see is children and parents arguing. That is a disrespectful behavior. Parents need to identify it as such, help their children understand that, so we don't argue in our home. We simply don't. You walk away from an argument. You let your children understand why. You know, somebody disrespect them by walking away without letting them know. 
but you communicate that so that your children learn to uh, work with the issues in life. There are going to be arguments. There are going to be disrespectful things uh, uh, that our children face daily, but they can't handle it. They've never been taught how. And so we end up with so much chaos, and not only in our families, but we see it in society now, uh, even in the political discourse. If we just saw discourse that was done respectfully, I think we would uh, all be shocked. It's a very dis- dis- disrespectful process, and our culture is paying a horrible price. And, you know, I guess one of the things that complicates it is when there's differences in approaches to parenting between mom and dad, the kids take advantage of that, don't they? Oh, absolutely. They're going to leverage that. And so when, when spend a, a moment, if you would, Vern, and help listeners understand um, what's available through the Parent Project and when the next series is taking place here in the Bay Area. Uh, well, that's, that's one. There are uh, a, a number of things, uh, listening, um, um, engaging our children, having uh, playing out family values, letting your children know the value, uh, structure huge issue in today's homes, particularly with parents, both parents working, uh, and uh, neither parent perhaps um, uh, communicating or working together on the discipline issues. Uh, so there are a, a, a plethora of subjects that we, uh, that we cover. Uh, I am just finishing up on classes this fall and I am going to take a summer break. I find that trying to provide classes over the summer normally it doesn't work. So in September uh, we've got classes uh, uh, again uh, prepared at this point at advance at Three Crosses Church in Castro Valley and Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley. Uh, any church uh, or any organization could be homeschool. Homeschool groups are great for this. Um, they're obviously very, very family oriented. I want their and our work very closely with their children with regard to the discipline and structure issue. Uh, this is invaluable. Uh, I've just not seen in any of the contemporary uh, literature that's out there with regard to uh, raising children some of these concepts that I've just shared with you. Uh, they're usually going to focus on communication, and any parent knows you can communicate. So you're blue in the face with your child, and that's not going to necessarily make a change. It's going to take some action, but you don't want that action to be punitive. They're going to learn how to take action without being punitive in a class. So it'll be this fall, or again, if any organization, any church would like to call me and discuss uh, having, uh, normally this is a 24-hour class series that spreads out over uh, 12 to 16 weeks. Uh, and uh, uh, again, to me, it's invaluable. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, as Vern mentions, maybe you recognize him within your own church or organization. You're, uh, maybe you're involved with a, a, a homeschooling parenting group and think, wow, learning better parenting skills. Who wouldn't benefit from that. I mean, we go and we take lessons on how to drive cars, how to sing, play the piano, but when it comes to parenting, we just jump in and hope for the best. Or you think, well, I know what my folks did. I'll just do the opposite of what they did. (laughs) And that usually ends in disaster, too. But the Parenting Project, 
is really making a significant difference in the lives of so many families, not only throughout the Bay Area, but literally throughout the nation. Let me encourage you to get more information online. If you'd like to find out about how you can uh, uh, perhaps uh, host Vern to come out and do a series at your church, you certainly go to HosannaPathways.org. That's Hosanna pathways.org or you can call area code 510-538-8117 that's 510-538-8117 or again online at hosannapathways.org our thanks to Vern Tyler founder of Hosanna Homes and the Hosanna Parent Project for being with us on this segment of Lifeline Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.